0: Some of you recently know that Jody and I uh, moved house. Now, aside from the hassle of, um, you know, packing and unpacking, all those sorts of things, one of the best things that we found about moving is that you, you know, you get to imagine um, how you turn this now bare space that you're moving into uh, into a home, right? You get to imagine what that's like. And, then, and so as we're, you know, looking at um, this this place, this listing, as we're scrolling through the pictures that are on, um, the re- on realestate.com, we're trying to imagine, well, what, what different parts of the place could look like when we eventually move in. Uh, you know, we're looking at the floor plan, we're seeing the measurements of what might fit, what might not, all these sorts of things. Now, um, people have different approaches when it comes to making something feel like home. Uh, but here's one thing that I know that nobody ever, ever does in that. Uh, Nobody ever keeps things identical uh, to the previous owner or to the previous tenants, do they? Uh, Can you imagine moving into a different place and how you choose to turn it into a home is by looking for exactly what the previous owners or tenants had, uh, where they exactly placed it and bought it, and then doing exactly the same thing. Now, um, sure, you could do that, but then that'd just be their home, wouldn't it? See, nobody moves into a new home and leaves things exactly as they were. Now, as we come to a close on the book of Philippians, uh, this series, How to Live Good News Lives, and in some senses, we've wrestled with that idea. Yeah? Uh, not about making a home, uh, but we've wrestled with trusting the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for us, in our place, that we might be right with God. And that means that God now takes residence. Yeah, God now takes residence in us. Our lives, if we trust this good news, is like a home with a new owner. We now become a work in progress, a renovation project, if you like, where God chips away at us so that we don't just simply trust the good news, although that's important, but we actually increasingly live Good news lives. And so, the last few weeks, if you recall, we've looked at, you know, different aspects of living good news lives. Right? right back to week one, to live more balanced, yeah, with the good news that we believe. To commit to working out our salvation with fear and trembling as God works through us. Last week, to live according to the pattern of the cross with what fills us, how we see glory, what we set our minds on. Right? These things are, you know, ongoing renovations in our lives, that by God's strength and our obedience help us to live good news lives. And so as we come to our final passage, uh, we're going to come to some issues that I suspect for many of us, including myself, they're a little uncomfortable. They're a little bit challenging. Because as you heard Marshall read, Paul goes on to address money, contentment, And giving. Yeah, Paul goes on to address money, contentment, and giving. It's almost almost as if Paul's kind of Asian, right? Because he's left the sensitive topics of money right to the very end of his letter. Now, talking about money just, you know, it hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? To extend that home idea, money can be like those secret rooms that people can have in their homes that are like hidden hidden behind cupboards and wardrobes that only you can have access to because nobody else knows that it's there. And yet, as we consider living good news lives, we do have to inevitably wrestle with this, don't we? I mean, we likely already think about money in some shape literally every day. And so we inevitably also have to let Jesus, if we trust Him, do His changing, renovating work in us, even in those matters of money, of giving, and of our contentment. And so God, from our passage through the lives of Paul, and as well as the Philippian church, I think gives us much to pause over. And so here's our roadmap today. We've got two points, and hopefully you've got your outlines in front of you. Uh, Two points. First point, we're going to learn the secret to contentment. Second point, we're going to share in the matter of giving and receiving. Learn the secret of contentment, share in the matter of giving and receiving. Uh, Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we um, come to this deeply personal and perhaps deeply confrontational topic today. And as we do that, we ask that above all that we would be wanting to live lives that please you. And so, would you do your transforming work in us? We pray. Help us to humble ourselves to what you might have to say to us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Now, look. Let's look at our first point: learning the secret. Yeah, you know, learning the secret um, to contentment. Uh, at the beginning of our passage, Paul finally gets round to one of the. Reasons why he writes the letter to begin with. Uh, to thank the Philippians for their generosity. Yeah. Now, if you remember the Philippian church, they sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to Rome with a pretty sizable gift Yeah, uh, to help Paul. Now, remember where Paul is? Paul is in chains, isn't he? He's in prison. Right. Prisoners in Rome were entirely on their own. Right? They had to provide for their own basic needs. They relied on outsiders to send them food because they wouldn't get it otherwise. And so this gift... The Philippians have sent with Epaphroditus actually means a great deal. And so naturally, what does Paul do? Well, he gives thanks. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. At last, you renewed your concern for me. Now, um, that, that, that verse, Paul, Paul isn't you know, putting them down, by the way. He's not like he's going, you know, finally you've picked up your giving game. At last, you've got around to it. Um, he says so in the very, it's the very same verse. He says, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. See, this church had every desire. They were gravely concerned for Paul's situation. But until recently, they just haven't been able to show their concern to Paul. Now, we don't really know why that's the case. It may have been that um, it was hard to get hold of Paul. Uh, It may have been to do with their poverty that we read elsewhere. It could have been something else altogether. But at last, they found an opportunity to show their concern by sending this gift with Epaphroditus. And we'll come back to the generosity of the Philippians in our second point. But for now... even though Paul is really, really thankful for this gift, just providing his meals and all that sort of stuff, even though he can rejoice greatly in the Lord for it, in his very next breath, what does Paul say? Perhaps surprisingly, he says that this gift doesn't bring him contentment. This gift doesn't bring him contentment. Read verse 11 to 12. Right? Verse 11 to 12, what does Paul say? He says, I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty and in want. Now, see, Paul's saying at least two things about contentment, yeah? Two things, that contentment isn't connected to circumstances, and that his contentment is learned. I'm going to unpack each one. First, contentment is not connected to circumstances. Not connected to circumstances. See, Paul says, whether you gave me that gift or not, whether I am in need or in plenty, whether I am hungry or well-fed, whether I am in want or in plenty, you know what? I am content regardless. See, Paul wasn't down in the dumps because he hadn't received the gift. And only now is he feeling good because he's received it. But Paul's life, in his entire ministry, he's had serious ups, he's had serious downs. Right? Late in the book of Acts, for example, we see that Paul goes from being shipwrecked and stranded, pretty low, to days later being invited to eat in the house of the wealthiest man in Malta. Right? Paul, throughout his ministry, experiences a lot of lows, very low lows, as well as some pretty amazing highs, and yet Paul says, my contentment isn't connected to my circumstances. To parachute his thoughts into our world, Paul's going, you know what, my contentment isn't dependent on the health of my investments, whether they're great or poor. It's not dependent on the number in my bank account or my superannuation, whether it is high or whether it's low. It's not dependent on the enthusiasm that I have for my work, whether it's stimulating or closer to being boring. It's not on the security of my job, whether it's stable or insecure. It's not how my kids are faring either. I am content, he says, no matter what. And I wonder, friends, just to pause for a moment, do you have a contentment like that? Do you want a contentment like that, that holds firm no matter what may come, no matter what circumstances you go through? Um, Let me read out a poem for you that I saw in my reading this week that I think... um, captures a little bit of how elusive contentment can be for so many of us. Yeah, uh, It's on the screens. A little, hopefully you can see it. It's a little bit small, but I'll read it out anyway. It says, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. This is probably from America. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth. And the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle age, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. See, friends, we can easily spend our entire lifetimes searching trying to find the type of contentment that Paul talks about. One not dependent on circumstances. Maybe that's you. You may well be a believer too, and you know that you're living out of this discontentedness, that you wish you had a contentment like Paul, but it just remains ever elusive for you. See, friends, how do we come to this contentment? What is the secret, yeah? What is the secret? Is it, you know, just simply to be uh, stoic, you detached to detach from all things, just have a stiff upper lip. Well, Paul says that's not the case. His secret, he says, is in the very next verse, right? Verse 13, have a look. Paul writes what? He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, you might be really familiar with this verse. This verse, by the way, single-handedly is probably one of the most misused and therefore misunderstood verses in all the Bible. Uh, just to prove the point, some of you know that I follow um, the NBA, the National Basketball Association in the States. There are a bunch of NBA players that have this verse tattooed, right? as if you know, the reason why they can shoot from half-court or jump so high that their head touches the rim is because Jesus gives them the strength each time to do it. Right? This, u- this verse is used a bunch of other ways too, right? to alleviate stress of an exam to accomplish difficult tasks, to walk a tightrope, right? All because I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Now, it's right and good to find comfort in Jesus. But as we've seen, this verse has got nothing to do with shooting a half-court shot. See, Paul's talking about contentment, isn't he? Paul's saying, I can do these things, as in, I can be content no matter the circumstance, because of Him who gives me strength. He's saying, my contentment doesn't depend on circumstances because it isn't about gain or loss. It's about Christ. And it's Christ's strength that keeps me seeing and living this way. That's the secret, friends. To put it another way, the content of Paul's contentment is Christ. And the strength for Paul's contentment is Christ. The content of Paul's contentment is Christ. And the strength for Paul's contentment is Christ. Now, you might be going, hey, Dom, that's a little anticlimactic, seriously, that's it? And to that I say, yep, that's it. But that secret, friends, is far more powerful than I think we give it credit. Let me try to explain. If Paul's content of his contentment is Christ, um, what might be the content of some of what makes us content? And, what, and how strong are they? Yeah? See, what if the content of our contentment is our health or our fitness? for example, right? How strong is that contentment? Well, you've got to say it's not particularly strong, is it? Your contentment will only go as far as your health and your fitness will go. And as we've all seen, it, all it takes is for one virus for the entire world to shut down. What if the content of our contentment is um, family or maybe being loved? Well, if those relationships were to disappear maybe because they've moved away or conflict happens or something else entirely, that would destroy our contentment. Worse yet, if someone were to fall ill, if something tragic were to happen, then our contentment would totally just collapse in and on itself. What if the content of our contentment wasn't being important and respectable? You know, Maybe with our work or things that we spend time in outside of work, a recreational activity like sport or maybe even gaining respect at church or something like that. Well, as soon as something goes wrong, or someone does better, or someone receives more recognition, or that bonus just doesn't come, well, our contentment completely evaporates. See friends, what is the content of your contentment? And if you were being as objective as possible, how strong is it? Because Paul's contentment is what? It's Christ. Christ is the content of his contentment. Christ is the strength of his contentment. Jesus Christ is the one who we've seen from this very letter He's the fountain of never-ending joy. Paul repeats that over and over again, that he rejoices in the Lord. He's the definition of unconditional sacrificial love. Right? Chapter 2, he gave up his rights as the very son of God to serve. He became one of us, dying for us, forfeiting his advantage for our advantage. He's a source of supernatural strength who enables and gives Paul the strength to remain content no matter what is going on around him. Who is strong enough to carry him and us to completion. He is the provider of otherworldly peace, who earlier in this chapter, maybe you looked at it in your CGs, who is was able to give us peace to guard our hearts and minds. See, this is who Paul entrusts his contentment to. Jesus, the fountain of never-ending joy, the definition of unconditional sacrificial love, the source of supernatural strength, the provider of otherworldly peace. That's a contentment, friends, that can never be lost. That's a strength that will never disappear. It doesn't matter if he's in plenty or in need, well-fed or hungry. Why? Because his contentment isn't based on circumstances, it sits in the palm of the one who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Paul's secret. And so, dear friends, will that be your secret too? Because if so, Paul adds another thing to this contentment, doesn't he? See, not only is it disconnected to circumstances, he says that this contentment is also learned. It's a learned contentment. He says it twice in verses 11 to 12, if you see. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. This requires, this this secret, this contentment, in a sense, requires a re-education. When I decided to leave the world of being a pricing analyst and move towards being a pastor, that wasn't an instant instant shift that I could make, right? Yes, I grew up going to church, but to make the shift, it required a two-year internship. It fo- it fo- I followed that with studying at a theological college for three and a half years. I was here as a student minister learning under um, Pastor Pete and the other staff with other college students the entire time. Right? I had to have my life, my character, my convictions all tested in that time. We all know right, that to take a new path often requires training and retraining. See, friends, Paul says that to know this secret, it doesn't come from just hearing it. Like changing careers, we need to retrain. We need to re-educate and learn this over time as he did. It doesn't happen by just discovering it or listening to a podcast or even reading a book about it. Like most meaningful things in life, to learn the secret of contentment doesn't have shortcuts. It doesn't have step-by-step instructions. It's learned in the school of real life. It's a bit like the vows that a couple would say to each other on their wedding day, right? I take you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. Right? Those vows, after they're said publicly, they need to be learned. They haven't learned it just by saying it. They need to be practiced. When things are better or worse, when things really are richer or poorer, when they really are sick or in great health, in the years and the seasons to come. We all know that there's no three easy steps to strong marriages. It's learned and practiced in the school of real life. Similarly, friends, the secret of contentment is learned over years, even decades, to reach contentment the way Paul speaks about it. That can't be achieved without this type of learning. It's about learning in leaner and more difficult times that Jesus is truly all you need. It's about learning in abundant and more privileged times to quote C.S. Lewis that he who has God has everything else. Sorry, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Yeah, that he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And is learned to learn those things over and over and over again, whether God, wherever God has placed you, whatever circumstances put you, to rest in Jesus and the strength that comes from him. Now friends, to be honest, the fact that it takes this type of learning, rather than, you know, just quick, three easy steps, probably explains why so few Christians can truly say with Paul that they've learned this secret for themselves. It's probably why contentment is so hard to spot even among believers. because this is a slow. Refining process that by God's strength, it took Paul over two decades of retraining and re educating and relearning. Right? I have no doubt that, like us, left to himself, Paul would probably choose comfort over hardship. He would probably choose plenty over adversity. He would probably rather get than give. But by God's strength, as he's chosen to live his life more and more with the ba- with a balance with the gospel that he believes, over time he's unlearned the things that used to bring him contentment. And he's learned that the one who gives him the strength to do all these things provides a contentment that makes everything else pale in comparison. Those previous things, they're now garbage for him. See, friends, this is a secret that requires learning. And I'm afraid for many of us, like, you know, many kids on their first day of preschool or big school, right? We instinctively just want to run away from it. I was one of those kids that took me about eight months to get settled without crying. But we can be like that when it comes to this sort of learning. We can run away from this learning to the lesser things like stuff or relationships or recognition that bring a more shallow and a more fragile contentment. We run away from this learning even when we know that it's only Jesus who can truly give it to us. See, Paul said he had to learn this secret. And so if we want this contentment to be fully ours, it's something we've got to commit to learning. It won't happen overnight. Friends, wouldn't it be incredible if in two years you could say with absolute assurance, because of what I've faced in the last two years, in plenty or in want, by Jesus' strength, I have learned more of this secret than I've ever known before. As one of your pastors, can I just say, that would be truly and supernaturally um, be remarkable. It'd be incredible if we could do that. Uh, let's move on to our second point, point. Um, point two, share in the matter of giving and receiving. Share in the matter of giving and receiving. From verse 14, Paul goes back to giving thanks to the Philippian church. Yeah? From verse 14, read with me. He writes, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. See, Paul's going, as much as my contentment isn't based on your gift to me, don't mishear me, it's great that you've partnered in my troubles. Right? This church has taken part and shared in the ups and downs of Paul's ministry through their generosity. Right? In 2 Corinthians, we see that even in extreme poverty, the church is still rich in generosity. They excelled in the grace of giving, Paul says. See, giving money for the Philippians was a visible demonstration that they were with Paul. It was standing side by side in this gospel work. And Paul is overjoyed by it. But why he's overjoyed, that might surprise you. Have a look at verse 14 again with me. Why is he overjoyed? It was good of you to share in my troubles. Then jump to verse 17 for the why. Not that I desire your gifts, Paul writes. What I desire is more to be credited to your account. Did you hear that? Paul isn't overjoyed because of what he gains from their gift. He's overjoyed by what they gain. He's not overjoyed by what he gains. He's overjoyed because of what they gain. Why? Well, again, two reasons. Um, it's a credit, firstly, to their account. Yeah? You see, friends, the Philippians' generosity, it wasn't a one-off spur-of-the-moment gift. Right? Did you notice how long they've been doing this? Paul says it's been since the early days of their acquaintance with the gospel. See, from the very moment that they were saved, unlike the churches in the area, unlike, you know, many churches today, the Philippians have been routinely sharing their finances. Paul tells us from the moment that he left for Thessalonica, a nearby city, they were already supporting him. Even when he later crossed the distant lands, they continued in their support. See, they wanted to demonstrate that they were with him in the work of advancing the gospel. This is a profound generosity. But perhaps more accurately, this is a good news generosity, isn't it? See, the Philippians understood from the moment they followed Jesus as baby believers what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Speaking to the disciples, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. See, even as infant Christians, the Philippians understood that Jesus did not withhold and freely gave himself for us. And so, as they, commit, so they committed from the very beginning also to not withhold in their finances, even in poverty, and freely give to the advance of the gospel. They understood this from day one, that giving their lives to God meant surrendering their wallets. And their ongoing giving showed that the gospel had truly gripped and shaped them. Like Paul, they wanted the gospel to go further and onward, and they were willing to put their money where their mouth was. Just as importantly, as they kept giving, it showed that the gospel was not just advancing further and onward, it was also advancing inward, down to the very depths of their souls. For them, giving towards the advancement of the gospel was not throwing money down the drain. It was investing in things that would never perish, spoil, or fade. Giving was an ongoing reminder that money and stuff brings no lasting contentment. And so it's a little wonder why Paul says, you know what, that's a credit to your account. Paul's going, I'm I'm so thankful for your giving, not because of what it gives to me, but what it reveals to me. I'm thrilled not because of what I gain, although that's good. I'm thrilled because you are all in in your desire to live good news lives. Your finances are in balance with the gospel you believe. You truly, truly get it, in other words. And that's your gain, dear Philippians. That's a credit to your account in the things that will last for all of eternity. And so, friends, we've got to ask the confronting question, what would our finances say about how we see the good news? What would would our finances say about how how we see the good news? What would an atheist accountant say about our commitment to what we believe? See, friends, as we give, we show the gospel is taking deeper and deeper root to our very depths. As we give, we remind ourselves that our contentment is found in Christ and from His strength and nothing else. As we give, we say that there is no higher cause this money could go to than the advancement of the gospel. And so, friends, Paul is saying to us, I hope you see that giving to the cause of the gospel is truly worthwhile because it's a credit to our account, our account for eternity. But it's not just Paul who's overjoyed and delighted by this giving. More importantly, God is delighted because giving is a fragrant offering. Yeah, it's a fragrant offering. In verse 18, Paul continues, I have received full payment and more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, Paul says, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul uses Old Testament language where the Israelites would offer an animal sacrifice to God and by doing so would be saying, God, I would rather have you than this animal. Even though this is my security, even though this is my best asset, I give it to you because I would rather have you. And that heart would be a fragrant offering to God. It would be acceptable and pleasing to Him. And now, we don't offer bulls or rams, yeah? But Paul says that it's now our giving. It's our financial giving that is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so the Philippians, as they give to Paul, not just generously but sacrificially to the point of hurting, God says, this church, it gives me delight. They give me delight. See, friends, we don't have a mandated percentage we're asked to give. We don't have a fixed figure that's prescribed to us, as helpful as that might be. It'd be great in some sense, wouldn't it? We could just, you know, tick the box and be done. No, what we're told about our giving is far more profound. We are told in the New Testament to give as we've been given by the God who spared no expense for us. We are told to offer up our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. See, how do we work out how much to give? What rule, if any, should we follow? Um, Let me quote um, C.S. Lewis one more time because he says stuff far better than I can. Um, He writes, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, what does that mean? Well, we're probably giving too little. If giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our giving excludes them. That's a little full on, isn't it? But if, friends, if giving is a credit in our account for eternity, if giving is a fragrant offering to God, we should be erring on giving too much rather than too little, shouldn't we? as we heard in the kids' talk. and um, As we close, can I be honest? Yeah, can I, can I just be honest with you, church? Because you know, as we speak about these things, about money, about contentment, about giving, it can be a little awkward coming from somebody who's on staff. I definitely feel it. It's a bit awkward. You can feel, I don't know, a little biased. Um, I grew up in a church where pastors weren't allowed to talk about church finances because it was seen as a conflict of interest. Um, And so I want to say to you, that's just embedded in me, by the way, but I just want to say to you as clearly as I can, when we're talking about giving, so long as giving to SWEC is a part of your worship, if you're a regular here, give generously beyond our walls. Give generously beyond our walls. Give to organizations that are committed to the cause of the gospel. Give to the work of global missions, whether it's our partners or others. Give to the cause of planting more churches to train future ministry workers, to ministries and organizations that are seeking to alleviate poverty or tackle social injustices, all the while seeking the gospel to advance. Because giving sacrificially to those ends delight and are a fragrant offering to God. And by the way, if you do choose to give more to church, none of the pastors' wages are going to increase because of it. That's not why we're talking about this today. Brothers and sisters, I hope you hear this, that we, like Paul, want to say to you, we are overjoyed at your giving, not because of what we gain, but because of what you gain. It's a credit to your account. It's a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. We want to say that we are overjoyed by your giving, not because of how it benefits us, but because of what it reveals to us. That sweat gets it that they're absolutely committed to the cause of the gospel, that they seek the advancement of the gospel and desire for the good news to plumb the depths of their souls. They want to live good news lives for His glory forever and ever, not their own. So, dear friends, would we let Jesus take residence in us, even in that secret room of our contentment, of our finances and our giving, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.